our next speaker and topic, one of interest and importance and relevance uh, by Roy Gulick, or Trip Gulick, as many of you know him, Professor of Medicine, Chief of Division of Infectious Diseases at Wheel Cor uh, Medical College in Cornell, and um, very active in issues of clinical trials at all levels, um, and um, many other things related to HIV disease, and uh, go ahead. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Um, you are getting tired. I'm but, sorry. Uh, but, let's uh, let's raise the energy level you know, in the room, right? Why don't we it's, get us all to stand up or something? Oh, there you go. There's the wave in row five. That that's right. fantastic. Okay. It was a good attempt, you guys. Um, hey, it's late February, 70 and sunny in New York. Like, what's going on, right? Okay, we're going to talk about investigational antiretroviral drugs. I have no disclosures. These are the objectives. We're going to talk about new HIV drugs in existing classes, and then new HIV drugs in new mechanistic classes, and I'm going to review the clinical data. But let's start with a question. Which investigational class of HIV drugs is farthest along in development? Alphabetical order, CAPSID inhibitor, CD4 attachment inhibitor, CD8 agonist, RNA-H inhibitor, or maturation inhibitor. Vote now. No dancing back there. Okay. Ha. All right, good. So you didn't know. <laughs> and the correct answer is number two, the CD4 attachment inhibitor. Joe Eron reviewed the capsid inhibitor. That's a brand new class. Uh, so this is preclinical, hasn't made it to human beings yet. Um, maturation inhibitor was a popular choice. And I know what you're thinking of, but you may know that the lead candidate in this class, or you may not know, was just removed from further clinical development because of GI toxicity. So that's behind. And then uh, I made up number three. There, <laughs> there is no it's such thing as a CD8 agonist. Jerry just told me he voted for that. <laughs> well, I thought it must have been very far from development. <laughs> so there are a lot of drugs in the pipeline. This chart uh, gives you a broad overview. But the point to make here is there are new nukes, new non-nukes, even new PIs a bunch of new entry inhibitors that work three different ways, uh, new integrase inhibitors, and then, as I just mentioned, the unfortunately abbreviated maturation inhibitor class. Rather than trying to review all of these, I'm going to focus on the compounds that are either the farthest along in development or offer a real step forward. Um, and so let's jump in. But first, a second question. <laughs> Which new HIV drug listed below is being investigated for both treatment and prevention. Bictegravir, cabotegravir, duravirine, fostemzivir, or ibilizumab. Easy for me to say, right? Ah, now that's a show tune. I smell women, smell them in the air. Think I'll drop my anchor in that harbor over there. Lovely, lovely. What show is that? Yes, of course, right? 
you go to, to uh, Washington, D.C. or San Francisco and ask that question, and they don't know. <laughs> okay, more than half of you knew that cabotegravir is actually the one listed that's being explored for both treatment and prevention. So I'm going to cover all five of these and add two more drugs. We're going to go through seven drugs. Nucleosides. What do we need in this class? Joe reviewed a preclinical nucleoside that has increased activity against nuke-resistant virus. That would be a plus. The one that reaches clinical development as of today has the potential to be more convenient over the nukes we have. And you're thinking, what's more convenient than one pill once a day? Let's take a look. So the new compound is called MK8591 also abbreviated as EFDA. The A stands for adenosine, and as you can see, it's an adenosine analog, a deoxyadenosine. Unlike the other nucleosides or nucleotides, this is a non-obligate chain terminator, meaning that, that it doesn't have to work through chain termination like all the other nukes we have. In fact, it inhibits the reverse transcriptase in a new way by preventing translocation. So just when you thought it was safe to go back into the abbreviation pool, you need to know another <laughs> one. NRTTI is nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. Got it? Okay. Potent antiviral activity in the test tube. It has broad coverage against both HIV-1 and 2 and as you would expect, multi-drug resistant strains. We learned at CROI this year that in animal studies, this compound accumulates in lymph nodes, the vagina, and in the rectal tissue. So that's a, an obvious benefit. And another point that was stressed at CROI this year is that this is going to be a low-dose drug, and so that it could be used in a variety of formulations, and that offers potential for more convenience. The other thing that will offer convenience is this. So this is the first study that was presented at last year's CROI of this compound in humans. This is a phase one study. What we're looking at at time zero, and I should emphasize this is a small study, uh, less than 10 patients. At time zero, people are given a single 10 milligram oral dose. And then we're following viral load for up to a week later. And what you see here is a nice drop in viral load that persists after simply one dose. So this is going to be a very long-acting nucleoside, and that's the potential benefit uh, over what we have today. So this compound could be dosed weekly, and that might be where we're going with antiretrovirals. Also, as mentioned, there are a number of other formulations that are available, including parenteral formulations, this is showing you two, one in red and one in green. This is in animals, in rats to be specific, but what you see here again is a single injection at time zero led to virologic suppression for up to 200 and some days. So again, long lasting um, is the potential here to move forward. This is going to go into formal phase one, two studies in humans as the next step. Non-nucleosides, we have a lot of NNRTIs. What would be better than what we have today? I think you'd agree less toxic and better tolerable is a good goal. Active against non-nuke resistant viruses and then fewer drug interactions. The new compound in this class that is in phase three 
uh, is deraverine, so it is an investigational NNRTI. Preclinical properties, it is potent at low milligram dose. It's metabolized by the CYP3A4 system, but importantly, it's neither an inhibitor nor an inducer of the CYP enzyme system itself, so has low potential for drug-drug interactions, and that's in contrast to the other NNRTIs we have today. Also, it's active in vitro against viral strains with some of the more common NNRTI mutations, which you know well, K103N associated with the favarins, Y181C associated with niverapine, E138K associated with etravirine and rilpivirine, and even combinations of these. So at least in the test tube, it has that activity. We saw phase one data. This has actually been published. Uh, this was in 18 treatment-naive patients um, with single dose over the course of a week. Green is placebo, no change in viral load, as you would expect. Two doses, either 25 milligrams in red or 200 milligrams in purple, and you can see prompt virologic suppression, so about a 1.5 log, and no difference between the two doses. So the good news is they'll go forward with the lower dose. We saw phase two data, and this has since been published. This was a randomized double-blind study of uh, 216 treatment-naive individuals with viral loads of at least 1,000 and CD4 counts of at least 100. Everybody received a backbone of TDF-FTC, and then they were randomized to either deraverine in green or efavirenz shown in gray. We're looking at the proportion suppressed to less than 40 copies per mil, and you can see from the back of the room really no difference between the two. And at the end of the study, just under 80% of all patients were suppressed on these three drug regimens. So essentially showing uh, similar virologic activity to efavirenz. What was different um, on that study was fewer side effects in the deraverine arm compared with the efavirenz arm. And then this is fresh off the presses, phase three deraverine data that was presented by Kate Squires on behalf of the team just at the Cori meeting earlier this month. So this was the large phase three multi-centered double-blind placebo-controlled study. It was treatment-naive individuals, again, with viral loads at least 1,000. They were tested for genotypic resistance to the study drugs and could not have any to get into the study. And you can see it's a big one, over 700 patients who were randomized to one of two options. Everyone received two nukes, and that was left up to the choice of the primary providers. And then they were randomized either to add deraverine at the 100 milligram dose versus the control arm was boosted darunavir 800-100 once a day. The data, 48-week data, are shown for you in the graph. And again, we're looking at uh, the response uh, suppression rate to less than 50. The deraverine arm is in green and the darunavir arm in gray. And you can see, again, between 80 and 85% of all patients were suppressed below detection. And this was not different between the two arms. The, uh, some of the fine points, protocol-defined virologic failure was about 5% in both groups. And interestingly, when they went back and looked at those patients, they found no drug resistance mutations, suggesting it was adherence that was the mechanism there. A discontinued due to an adverse event or side effect, you can see, was low, 2 to 3%. The most common side effects reported 
Uh, diarrhea was number one, 14% of the deraverine group versus 22% of the boosted darunavir, and nausea about 11 to 12% in both groups. Finally, lipid profiles. Lipids decreased with deraverine modestly, but you can see the decrease, and increased with boosted darunavir, and you see the changes there. So this is a phase three study that will be submitted to the FDA, so this drug is fairly far along in development. What you won't see, because there's no data yet, is does deraverine have activity against people with NNRTI-resistant viruses? I showed you the test tube data, but we haven't seen any clinical data to back that up. Integrase inhibitors, we've got three. What do we need? Well, active against integrase-resistant virus would be a plus, or perhaps more convenient. Again, what's more convenient than one pill once a day? Well, less frequent administration. There are two new integrase inhibitors that are far along in development. One is Bictegravir, abbreviated BIC. You can just call it BIC. And uh, it is highly active against HIV in the test tube at the nanomolar range. It has activity like other integrase inhibitors against both HIV-1 and HIV-2. And it has activity against integrase inhibitor-resistant strains, and that's what's shown for you here. So you can't read this, but these are a number of important integrase inhibitor substitutions or I should say integrase substitutions, and then the bars show you the activity of the different integrase inhibitors in the presence or activity against each one of these strains. The higher the bar, the more resistant. So you can see plenty of these are resistant to raltegravir, shown in blue, and elvitegravir, shown in orange. You can see dolutegravir has a lot of activity against even multiply substituted integrase there. And then the new one, Bictegravir, shown in yellow, perhaps a suggestion of enhanced activity even against some of the dolutegravir-resistant strains. This compound has a long half-life of 18 hours that's consistent with once-daily dosing, and no PK boosting is required. So this would again be a one um, once-a-day integrase inhibitor without the need for boosting. It neither inhibits nor induces the CYP system or the glucuronidation system, the UGT enzyme system. That's in contrast to the other integrase inhibitors. So this one has a low potential for drug-drug interactions. We saw the phase one data Joel Gallant presented at the ASM microbe meeting last fall. This was a small first-in-man study of 20 patients with viral loads between 10 and 400,000 and CD4s at least 200. They were either treatment naive or off their prior ART for 12 weeks. And it was a dose escalation study over a short two weeks, as you can see, given as monotherapy. Placebo, no change, and then you can see increasing doses of Bictegravir. And at the highest two doses, you saw over a two-log drop, showing potent virologic activity over the short term. This supported moving forward with a phase two study, and that's what we saw again at the CROI meeting just earlier this month, presented by Paul Sachs from Boston. This was in treatment-naive people with viral loads at least 1,000, CD4s at least 200, and they screened out for anyone with active hep B or hep C disease. And you can see just under 100 patients were randomized to everyone received TAF, FTC is the backbone, and then two to one, so two randomized to BIC versus one 
randomized to dolutegravir, so that was the control arm. And you see the results down here in terms of virologic suppression rates to less than 50. BIC was 97, dolutegravir 94, very few uh, virologic failure. These are the week 24 results. And then week 48, you see essentially stable results uh, over 90% in both groups. Again, very few virologic failures. So his interpretation was that BIC regimen was virologically very similar to the dolutegravir regimen. Also similar were adverse events and lab abnormalities. And again, people that experienced virologic failure, and there weren't a lot of them, they found no drug resistance detected, again, suggesting adherence as the issue. Phase three studies of BIC are in progress, and they have announced that there will be, big surprise here, co-formulation with TAF, FTC, and BIC-Tegravir all in one pill. The other one that's in development is cabotegravir, abbreviated CAB. It's a similar chemical structure to dolutegravir. It has a similar resistance pattern. We've previously seen um, virologic data when CAB is given as an oral drug at these doses, and that's been published. But the real benefit of CAB is its ability to be formulated with nanotechnology into parenteral administration, so either sub-Q or IM injections. And the extraordinary thing about this drug is its exceedingly long half-life, 21 to 50 days. Here's the PK study. So at time zero, a whole bunch of different doses of CAB were given, this is human data, and just a single injection. And what we're looking at are the integrase inhibitor doses over, usually when you look at curves like this, this is hours or days, we're looking at weeks. So up to 48 weeks later, you can still detect CAB after one single dose. So this drug, exceedingly long half-life in the body. So this supports um, monthly dosing for sure. The safety profile in the initial studies were injection site reactions. All were mild. They were reduced over time and reportedly well tolerated with few people dropping out of the study. This is in contrast to those of you who remember T20, very different uh, profile of injection site reactions. Okay, so we've gone to phase two studies with injectable CAB, and it's been paired with injectable rilpivirine, the IM form, and the two drugs together would be an all-parenteral maintenance regimen. And that was the subject of the LATTE-2 study, which kind of sounds pretty good right now. And uh, so this was phase two, multi-center, parallel group, open label, treatment, naive people, the sample size, 309. Everybody comes on at the beginning of the study and goes with the oral form. So they receive two nukes, a Bacavir 3TC, and the oral form of cabotegravir. Uh, for 20 weeks. What are they doing there? They're looking for any kind of side effects or idiosyncratic reactions because once you inject this drug, there's no way to get it out. So they want to pre-screen for anyone who might have a reaction to CABO. So that happens, and then people that were suppressed, which was nearly everyone, were randomized to one of three options. So CAB and rilpivirine given uh, every four weeks, so monthly, every other month, every eight weeks, or one group was continued on the oral formulation. At the IAS meeting this past summer, we saw the 48-week results from the LATTE-2 study. 
And the good news was everybody did well. So we're looking at the proportion suppressed below 50 copies. And you can see on the oral forms, it uh, exceeds 95%. And then when you go to the two injectable forms or continue the oral form, you can see all three of the study arms do well with suppression rates at week 32, for example, 90% or better in the three arms. This is one of the studies to challenge our 20-year-old uh, dogma that you need three drugs to treat and maintain HIV. This would be a two-drug regimen that looks like it'll be effective in suppressing virus. Um, when you looked at virologic response rates, again, at, at the updated week 48, you see about 90% were responding in all three arms and very few virologic failures. What about side effects? Again, injection site reactions were most common, and these were common. In fact, almost everyone reported an injection site reaction. Over 80% were the lowest grade, again, mild, and uh, roughly just under 20% were considered moderate. But once again, very few people withdrew. In fact, only two patients withdrew from the study because of injection site reactions. So these are relatively well-tolerated uh, injection site reactions. So there is a study that is just about to actually start it right here in New York just in the past couple of weeks. It's a nationwide study from the HIV Prevention Trials Network, the HPTN 083, and it's using cabotegravir for PrEP. So what could be easier than one pill once a day PrEP? Well, the thinking goes long-acting injection might be better tolerated. So this study is going to compare head-to-head -head what we have today, TDF-FTC, given one pill once a day, versus injectable cabotegravir for PrEP. The study population are adult MSM or transgender women who are at high risk for HIV, and you can see it's an enormous study, 4,500 people. It is fully powered uh, to look at efficacy and comparative e efficacy with TDF-FTC. Uh, people need to be high risk who are coming in and obviously HIV negative. The, they can fulfill any one of these high risk criteria. As mentioned, it's uh, double-blinded, so everyone will take one pill once a day, and everyone will get cab injections every other month. Um, and one of these will be the real thing and the other placebo. It is a non-inferiority efficacy study. We have five sites here in the New York area. Some of the study coordinators are here at our place. Valerie Hughes, where are you? Oh, she's in the last row. So if you want to refer a patient, Val would be happy to talk to you. Um, our partners over in Newark at Rutgers, uh, John Berzel from Harlem. Raise your hand, John. That's John, if you're close to the Harlem site. Uh, the New York Blood Center on the Upper East Side is doing it. And where's Ann from the Bronx? Also in the second row. Val, how come you're in the last row? <laughs> oh, her knees. Um, Ann, raise your hand again so people can see. So if you want to talk to any of the three of these, uh, we're all actively recruiting for this very interesting PrEP study. New mechanisms of action would be important because they will have activity against drug-resistant virus. And let's use the old-fashioned hand method. How many of you right now are taking care of a patient who's resistant to all 29 drugs that we have? Okay, I ask this question a lot, and it's about what it was here, 4.5%. All right, stay with me now. 
So it's uncommon. We're not seeing too many patients like this, but these patients do need options. So one option, as I say, would be a drug with a new mechanism of action. We look to the entry inhibitor class for new mechanisms. So entry, HIV entry, is a three-step process, as you know well. The first is HIV binding to the CD4 receptor through GP120. When that happens, it allows binding to the second receptor called the co-receptor. Um, and then when that binding occurs, it allows fusion of the viral membrane with the host cell membrane. So three steps means three chances to interfere with them. Of course, we have our CCR5 inhibitor approved, Maraviroc, and we've got Enfuvertide, which is the fusion inhibitor. There's an investigational one that I will talk about called Albuvertide. And up until recently, we haven't had a CD4 binding inhibitor, but now there are two in development. Fostemzavir, new drug name, binds to GP120 and prevents binding to the CD4 receptor. And the other way to do it, Ibilizumab is a monoclonal antibody that binds to part of the CD4 receptor. So not targeting the host this time, or sorry, not targeting the virus, but actually targeting the host. So let's, uh, let's look at these new compounds. Fostemzavir is an oral HIV attachment inhibitor. It's a small molecule. It's actually a prodrug, so it's rapidly broken down to the active compound, which you might guess, is temzavir, so the FOS is sliced off after it's swallowed. As mentioned, it inhibits CD4 binding by binding to HIV GP120. Pharmacokinetics suggests that it could be dosed once or twice a day and would not need boosting. Interestingly, uh, baseline susceptibility to this compound is reduced in some proportion of patients due to natural polymorphisms. So changes in GP120 that can be naturally occurring can confer resistance to this compound. That may mean we need to screen for susceptibility to this compound. Here's the published data. You can see it's actually getting a little old. Uh, dose escalation, a number of doses of fostemzavir, either with or without boosting. And you can see at the highest doses, about a 1.5 log reduction, showing that this new mechanism confers virologic uh, activity. This supported a phase two study, which uh, was published now a couple of years ago. Um, and it was randomized, controlled, partially blinded to fostemzavir dose. It targeted treatment-experienced people, and they, uh, but they defined that as being on a, at least one antiviral drug for at least one week. So that's a kind of an interesting definition for experience. They did uh, pre-screen for susceptibility to fostemzavir, and they were randomized to one of four arms, fostemzavir um, plus two nukes, and then the control arm was two nukes plus adizanivir. It's not two nukes, actually. It's TDF plus raltegravir was the back, background regimen for all five arms. Um, and so ultimately, with uh, the four different doses they tested, they ended up selecting the highest dose, 1,200 milligrams, to go forward with into future studies. The efficacy of the arms, they combined all the fostemzavir arms into one and compared it to adizanivir, and you see 61 suppression, percent suppression below 50 versus 53%. People often say, well, that's pretty low. Remember, these are treatment-experienced patients, not treatment-naive patients, and there was some dropout to account for that, but looked comparable to boosted adizanivir. And then in terms of safety, 
There were uh, AEs leading to drug discontinuation were actually fewer on the fosetemzivir compared to the boosted atazanivir, so relatively well tolerated. Fosetemzivir now is in phase three development. It was given breakthrough status by the FDA a couple of summers ago, meaning that that uh, propels development faster. And uh, this phase three study in treatment experienced is fully enrolled. We were a site for that, and we look forward to those results. Ibilizumab is an HIV entry inhibitor. As mentioned, it targets not the virus, but the host. So it is an antibody that binds to the second domain of the CD4 receptor. It's been in development quite some time. So it is a monoclonal antibody. It has to be given parenterally, and it could be dosed every one to four weeks. Um, development through phase one and two has been either published or presented. This study was perhaps of clinical interest. It was in treatment experience people with at least three class resistance, and those results were presented. I don't think they've ever been published. But if you're, what you're looking at here is the percent below 50. So they went on ibilizumab at one of two different doses and then optimized the background regimen. And you can see somewhere around a 40% resuppression rate. Again, emphasizing that this was a heavily pretreated group of patients. What's new about ibilizumab is the phase three study. And what's new about phase three studies for treatment experience is that the FDA changed the rules on this. This would be the first compound that uses the new rules. So what did they do? They looked at someone uh, with three-class resistance who has been on ART at least six months, and note the small sample size of only 40. They continued their baseline regimen, added ibilizumab at a dose of 800 at day seven, and then the primary endpoint was day 14 for a phase three study. And what did they see? Well, they saw that people that went on ibilizumab had, uh, most of them had a 0.5 log reduction, and about two-thirds of them had a one log reduction at day 14. That's the new endpoint that the FDA is using to approve drugs. What we saw at CROI was that after two weeks, they were allowed to optimize their background regimen and continue, and those results showed that uh, about half of patients had a one or two log reduction, and about 40% of patients were able to reduce below 50 copies. So this compound will have use in heavily treatment-experienced patients. It's, uh, FDA considers it an orphan drug and has given it breakthrough designation, and there is going to be a program to access it, an expanded access program. Last drug, two slides, albuvertide. Why do we need another fusion inhibitor? Well, as you know, infuvertide was injections twice a day, Albuvertide can be dosed by injection once weekly, so a much longer half-life. It was combined in an early pilot study in treatment naives with boosted lopinavir. This was a study from China. And at the end of 48 weeks, that two-drug regimen resulted in 56% being suppressed below 50 and then more recently at the Glasgow meeting last fall, we heard the results of the talent study. These were planned interim analysis. Uh, talent is test albuvertide and treatment experience. Note the end there. Patients. It's like just take whatever letters you want and form a word. Um, this was second line therapy following, again, done in China, following virologic failure on two nukes and a non-nuke. And they used boosted lopinavir twice a day as the backbone, randomized to either combine with two nukes, which would be standard of care, 
or albuvertide. And in this planned subset analysis, they found that 80% of the albuvertide people at 48 weeks were suppressed below 50 versus 66% in the nuke arm. You might say, why they use boosted lopinavir, but that's the standard of care in China. So this supports further studies moving forward. So that's it. I will stop there, and thanks for your attention. And I use the minute that Judy Courier didn't use. She's a really good friend. Questions? So we've been, um, we've been looking for, uh, in various diseases for um, non-injection therapies and all oral therapies. And um, there was a wonderful presentation by Charlie um, Flexner. Uh, Flexner from Hopkins on the value of parenteral therapies. And I wonder if you could, if you remember some of them, go over that, because I was actually very struck by the fact that we probably always thought of these as being bad. And actually, they're a tremendous uh, potential value for parental over oral therapies. And one of them is the long acting, but other things as well. Yeah, I, I think in our field, we, you know, the first 10 years of antivirals was finding ones that worked. And then the next 10 years was finding ones that were better tolerated, more efficacious, and easier to take. And we always said 10 years ago, the holy grail of HIV therapy is one pill once a day. And that works for lots of our patients, but not everyone can take one pill once a day. And that's where I think these new long-acting injectables. So what groups will particularly benefit from this new approach? Uh, I think adolescents are an obvious one. I think injection drug users and methadone maintenance programs, prisoners might, might benefit from this. Um, other people who just don't like taking pills, we all have a couple of those. They are working on other things besides injections, because again, as we know, not everyone likes injections either. Uh, there are implants, so much like uh, contraception, they have new implants that have an antiretrovirals in them and elutes, and we've seen some dog studies on that. Um, people have talked about even more far out approaches like films, you know, like the Listerine, oh, I'm not supposed to use trade names. The, uh, what do you call it? Mouthwash. <laughs> Thank you, second row. Mouthwash uh, film, you know, that you just put in your mouth and it dissolves. So people are working on that. Or what about um, like a gel that you could rub on your skin? So all of this is on the table now. We thought it was far out, but now it looks like it may well be developed. Our field is really leading medicine in thinking about new kinds of preparations that can be used to improve adherence. Yeah. It's exciting. No, I think it was very exciting and very interesting, having not thought about it that way, to, and always thinking about parental therapy as a fallback if you actually don't have good oral therapy. But there are advantages there. Here's advantages. It was pointed out that there are stigma issues, that uh, you can probably be more um, secretive or more private about um, taking an injection infrequently rather than taking pills. Let, let me ask you, you all, how many of you have a patient that you think would like to do injectable every month or every other month? Yeah. Okay, a lot of people. So that was the other thing. A survey has been done on whether patients would prefer injectable or oral agents, and it came out sort of just like the providers here, that yeah, patients I, actually wanted something like this rather than saw it as a 
disadvantage. I mean, we know from contraception that right. people like choices, right? Mm -hmm. So not every, you know, one size does not fit all, right? So I have a few questions. Um, when would you estimate that cabotegravir would be available for treatment if not PrEP? Yeah, so the question was, when would cabotegravir be available? Obviously, we need phase three studies. I, what I showed you for treatment was phase two. That looked pretty compelling. So the phase three is in progress right now. Um, so if you had to guess, you'd say maybe uh, a year or two. For PrEP, again, you need a phase three comparative study, and that's what we got. So that study I mentioned that's accruing now would be the study that would be able to be submitted to the FDA for approval. Um, so that's going to be a couple more years. So um, is there any information or concern about development of resistance if a long-acting acting agent's dose is missed? Absolutely. So remember, you can give one dose of cabotegravir and it could stick around for 48 weeks. Um, obviously, if you're an HIV-infected person and you're not taking your other meds, that might rapidly lead to resistance. So we're going to have to be really careful, both for treatment and for prevention with these long-acting compounds. People talk about, you've heard the phrase, covering the tail. So that means that the PK, the concentration of the drug, lasts for a really long time and then only begins to go away. And if you, again, you need something, you need more drugs there to make sure that you're not going to develop resistance because you have a single agent in the bloodstream. So is there any thought to combining parenteral agents in a cocktail? So I showed you the data from Latte, which is just that. But, that, but it's parenteral plus oral rather than No, no, that was all parenteral. Was all parenteral. Yeah. Oh, Sorry okay. if I didn't make that no. clear. It was cabotegravir injectable and rolpivirine injectable. Oh, okay. All combined into one. In fact, people are taking the next step here. Why not have contraception? Also combined with <laughs> antiretrovirals, and so that's actually being talked about right now. It's kind of well, cool. And in in South Africa, where, where I work, it's the most common form of um, female contraception is monthly injections or three monthly injections. So it, it and it's very well accepted around the world. Yes. Okay. Um, Bictegravir is. The, is Bictegravir, and I might have missed this in your talk, or perhaps you didn't mention it, is Bictegravir a significant step up to Dalutegravir when it comes to resistance or so, equivalence? So the question was, how does Bic um, compare with Dalu in terms of resistance? And all the data we have is what I showed you. That was test tube data. So some of those bars we're a little bit shorter in the BIC. We don't know that that will actually play out clinically or not. So I think we're going to have to wait for clinical data. But it looks like it's highly active against integrase inhibitor-resistant virus. Okay. I'm, not, I'm sorry, I don't understand this question. Are there any other questions from the audience? All right. Thank okay. you. Thank you so much. But don't, don't leave yet. We're not finished. And in fact, you're in for a treat and an important one.